Ah, uh, man, it's so good to be with you. I'm a local pastor at Riverside Church in St. Louis, and uh, on behalf of that church, as, a, as is the custom around the world when you visit fellow Christians, I bring you greetings from Riverside Church, and uh, we'll be heading back there tonight, and so, you know, my emails uh, didn't stop since I came here, and uh, people to pray for, care for, things to figure out, and it's just a pleasure to be among uh, fellow pastors and ministry leaders and to be with you. And I've turned to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. If you, if you have your smartphone or a Bible or something, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And uh, I, I'd like us to think about together the, the five temptations no one's talking about, um, uh, which, which really becomes the five graces that God has for us that we need to know about, you know. So as you're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, may I remind you of something that the true wise man, the one greater than Solomon, once said when he told a story about two people who went to a temple to pray. And uh, the one person praying was at a distance, head bowed, beating his breast. Uh, The other person was praying uh, and saying, I thank you, God. You remember that story from the true wise man, Jesus? And he said this in his prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men especially this tax collector over here, right? But there it is. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Um, Jesus, in correcting that idea, uh, isn't isn't, um, isn't leading us to believe that we're not different. Of course we're different. I'm not like you. In some ways, I'm from southern Indiana, Midwest, uh, and uh, a white guy and uh, a Presbyterian, and, uh, you know, all that stuff. And uh, many of you are not any of those things, and we're different. Jesus isn't denying that God-given difference, but there's another way that I can think I'm not like you, and you can think you're not like me, and it's deadly. And uh, it, it exposes itself in local pastoral ministry because... Um, um, if I'm uh, doing the work of ministry in a church in Webster Groves, Missouri, and uh, another church comes into town and plants, right? Um, and they happen to just, just be down the road, and, I, and I'm driving down the street where the church building is located that I serve, and I see signs in front yards that tell people to go to another church where these folks belong. Uh, they are uh, earnestly tapping into the idea that their church isn't like our church. And it rouses in me the desire to take out an ad in the paper, the same paper, right, that they would read, and let the community know that we're not like other churches and why you should come to us. And I have found over 20... Uh, three or 25 years of pastoral ministry, this thing wears me out. <clears throat> trying to compete with you and you trying to compete with me for a, a few hundred people out of thousands to prove how we're not like each other. And I want to say that's as deadly as porn. That's as deadly as greed. That, that's as deadly as whatever sin you think is the most deadly one. Uh, and why I say that is because of this teaching about the Lord Jesus that he gave us, not like others. And then we see it fully fleshed out in a place like Ecclesiastes 10, where wisdom is telling us the errors of a leader. The errors of a leader. It says that there. In verse 5, chapter 10, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. And then he lists five errors that those in leadership trip over. And they all are related to this idea of we're not like each other. I'm going to be somehow other than human and somehow better than you. So let's pause there and ask the Lord who created us and holds us together to free us and to thank him for this poetry in Ecclesiastes 10. Lord, we ask now as we sit before your word that your spirit, by and with this word, would make much of you. 
and that you might in this moment bring freedom from bondage, that you might bring healing from wounds, that you might bring wisdom to our ambitions, and that you might bring forgiveness for our sins, and that you might bring us the tasty goodness of purpose and leadership. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Now, the first thing I want to highlight is that in Ecclesiastes 10, talking about the errors of a leader, the very, very good news is this. The very, very good news is this, is this is poetry. And at first, you might think, oh, my goodness, how's that good news? Because this is not a prophet telling about the errors of the leaders. You know what a prophet would sound like? Woe to you. Right? If Isaiah is going to talk about the errors of the priests and the prophets and the shepherds, he's going to say, woe to you. And so we would all gather. Most of us already feel the woe of condemnation in our heart. The guest speaker comes in and prophet lays it on us, right? So it's refreshing. It's really a gracious, kind thing that God preaches in lots of different kinds of ways. And the same God who preaches like a prophet also preaches like a sage. God loves poetry. And so here, for him to talk about the errors of a leader and then give us a whole bunch of proverbs, a whole bunch of little bits of poetry, is room giving. It's hospitable. You know, the part of the struggle we have with poetry is that you can't get it the first time around. A lot of times you read it and that means you got to read it again. It feels like a waste of time, you know. But the awesome thing is, you don't have to get it the first time. It's like one of the few pockets of grace in a pastor's life, poetry. It doesn't expect you to get it the first time. You can not get it and say, oh, that's okay. Try again. And so here it is, the Lord talking about errors in a leader's life, and he uses the voice of a sage, which means there's lots of room to reflect, meditate, interact, come back to it. Isn't that kind? Our God is kind. And this is merciful of him. So let's like relax and let these bits of poetry wash over us as they reveal to us the true wise man, I think, ultimately. So here we are, the very first temptation that no one is talking about is a temptation to believe that you have immunity because you're in ministry. You have immunity because you're in ministry. Look at verse 8 if you're seeing it there. He who digs a pit will fall into it, <laughs> and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. What is the first error of a ruler? He thinks because he's a ruler, he's immune. But the proverb is telling us, even a king, even a ruler, even someone in leadership, if they work with heavy rocks, will get bruised. Uh, if you stick your hand into a Middle Eastern wall where serpents are known to be coiled up and you are a pastor, that thing is still going to bite you. I was, uh, for, for a season, renting an old farmhouse out on a few acres. It was a Saturday night. I was out praying. I don't often do that. I, you know, that would not be the, the model for my, of my life, but it was a good moment. I was out praying on a Saturday night. I was out in the yard, and I moved away this big old piece of, of cardboard, and there it was, curled up right there, a Missouri snake. And I forgot just for a moment that most snakes in Missouri are not poisonous. But there are a few, and I don't know how to tell which ones. And it's coiled up looking right at me, and I thought, this isn't supposed to happen. I'm a pastor. I'm praying. It's Saturday night. I'm preaching tomorrow. Right? Uh, it's hard to believe, but I, I once played football, American football, and uh, uh, I was a quarterback. And, uh, and uh, you know, the awesome thing about being a quarterback in practice is they give you a different color jer jersey, and no one can hit you. It's awesome. 
Nobody can hit you. I had the red jersey. It meant no one can hit me. Here's the thing. In the game, they take the red jersey off. Anybody can hit you. So the linebackers on the other side, as you're going, fly, 85, linebackers looking right at you. S-Y in your mind, right? Pastoral ministry, sometimes we think, ah, oh, I'm in ministry. Uh, my, my gifts are blessed. Uh, people come to know the Lord. You know, people think I'm a good preacher. We go home to our spouses and they're asking us to do dishes. Don't you know I'm a blessed preacher? You know, um, somehow I'm not like other people. I don't, I don't get hurt like other people. Here's the thing. Uh, you are not immune. It's, it's folly to think that you are. Let that sit a moment and think about what is it in your life right now that you're saying, oh, I'm not like other people. I mean, for them, sure, but for me, I can. And uh, this immunity thing is a, is, a, is a real difficulty for us. Can we think about this in New Testament terms? It's the word blessing. What does Jesus say uh, how would you know if you encountered a blessed person, according to Jesus? How would you know? They would be poor in spirit. They would be meek. They would be makers of peace. Thinking it through. They would be hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'd be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what he says a blessing looks like. Now, see, the good news about that is you can be rich or poor, white, brown, black, or otherwise, and be blessed, man or woman, adult or child. The blessing is available for anyone because anybody, rich or poor, you don't have to be rich to be poor in spirit. It's not something unique to a particular race. You... But what happens to us is we're immune. God blesses our ministry. There's fruitfulness to it. Therefore, we must be blessed. I'm privileged. I have an anointing. Therefore, snakes don't bite me. I can use an axe and never have to worry. And that's deadly. It's deadly to think that way. Can I share a very personal story with you? Not all the details, just a bit. Uh, and it's a little heavy. I'll just prepare you. In about 15 sentences, the heavy part will drop. We ready? So uh, I'm speaking at a conference. This is years and years ago. Speaking at a conference, I spoke five times. It was one of those conferences I'll never forget because God was so tangibly present. It's not always that way, is it? And one of those moments where he was tangibly present, people came to know Christ. People repented. I was tired at night because of the number of people that wanted to talk. It was a remarkable time of blessing. I'm driving on the way home, four and a half hour to five hour drive. On the way home, I call my wife uh, 15 years to check in, and she says, our marriage is over. I'm done. Now, uh, there's a lot to say about that, and all these years later, there's certainly a redemptive, though a very broken and messy, ugly, but a very redemptive story to all that. But I say it to say this. How was it that while God was blessing his gifts that he gave me in a particular moment, he already at the same time knew my marriage was over? You think about that. When you begin to believe that because God bless your gifts, you yourself are favored, watch out. Remember this. God blesses the gifts in you because he pledged that he would. 
He can speak truth through a donkey. Remember that Old Testament passage? He promised that his word would not return void. That's for anybody that sends out his word. That isn't unique to you or to me. So, he will be faithful to his gifts. Do not misinterpret that as somehow you are now immune. And you can be and do what others can't be and do. I thought I was immune, my brothers and sisters, and I was a fool. Because here's the thing. God will let you be foolish. If you have a thought in your mind, oh, he'll stop me. What else do you need than for a, a preacher to stand up in front of you and point to what he said? Like, what else do you think you need to know immunity is folly? Are you not like other people? You don't need just the word. You would need something more. So the enemy of our soul, he comes in and whispers to us, you can be like God. You can be immune from what other people face. And when we think that way, we just get into trouble. So watch out for that. Watch out for that. Remember the Lord Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant and humbled himself and made himself obedient even unto death. He is our great high priest, able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, because though he was without sin, he was tempted in every way. If the Savior who loves you and saved you and brought you to himself did not take up immunity, remember, no servant is greater than his master. You too also need wisdom. So the first, first thing about a ruler is that he, begins, he or she begins to think they're immune and that's a problem. You're a human being, just like anyone else, and that is freeing. <laughs> I was uh, walking with a, a mentor of mine. He's 86 years old. We were, what a privilege, you know. He's 40 years older than me. He was my age when I was born. And uh, uh, we, walked, we walked down hiking, walked down this deep, deep ledge that he's always done all these years. And then we walked all the way back up. I was nervous because he's a bit older now, you know. And we got back up. When we got back up to the top, he said this to me, Zach, next time I want to go on a hike like this, you just tell me, Leighton, you're too old for that. You don't have anything else to prove. And he said, I'll be thankful if you tell me that, you know. It's a freeing thing too. To embrace being 86 and loved by the Lord and no longer having to prove anything about how far you can hike, you know? It's a freeing thing to not be immune and just to be you. So there's a goodness there. The second one, and we'll move along a little quicker now. The second one is to resist rest. To resist rest. I'm not talking about those of us who are restaholics. We, we, we love rest. And we really like this point that I'm about to make. I'm not talking about that. There's a, a group of folks who, right now, it's about my age and older. We're workaholics usually. And somewhere around, you know, a little less than my age and lower, you guys got rest down pretty well. Now, that's an overstatement. I don't want to start any conflict. You know, we're just... But, but, you know, you, as you travel around the country, you hear pastors talk like this. You know, younger guys, they're always talking about pace, always talking about rest, always talking about family, got to be home, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the older guys are always saying, man, there's work to do, there's work to do, there's work to do, right? Well, that's overstated. But I'm not talking about the, that you, are, you who know that you need to, to rest. Um, I, uh, I, I was uh, talking with a, a young pastor and 
uh, he, he canceled, he was a youth pastor, and he canceled all the Wednesday night youth meetings. And I asked him, why, why were they canceled? And he said, well, his, his little newborn, uh, his one-year-old had a cold. I said, oh, is, is, is your wife out of town? She's not able to be there. This is a Wednesday night. No, 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 she's home. Okay. Well, I, I need to be home too. Okay. You know, I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't understand why you cancel the whole, all the events uh, for a Wednesday night when your one-year-old has a cold and there's another adult there caring for the one-year-old. <laughs> That's probably a generational thing. You know what I'm saying? But the strength of that is this awareness of families, what I'm getting at, and rest. But the, maybe there's a weakness there, too. Like, well, we, can, we need to work, right, or whatever it is. Okay, so all that is, is there. But here's the thing. Resisting rest. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So what's the issue? Success. I mean, we're all interested in that. Success, there are two ways, two ways to it. One, use the tools you have and never stop to sharpen them. Two, use the tools you have but have a rhythm of rest, so you sharpen them. The one looks more appealing because it's like the tortoise in the hare. It busts out fast. I mean, the ones that do not pause to sharpen their tools look for a while like they're passing us by. And we begin to think, oh, I, I got I to gotta catch up. No, you don't. Give it time. They're about to implode. Don't, don't take your cues from a person who will not rest because they're not like other people. I was such a person. I can still be that way. This person, eventually, you see the tools just wear down. And what happens? They have to work harder. That makes sense, the analogy, right? If you're, if you're trying, you ever tried to cut an orange with, with, or a watermelon or, not a, or a, a, a grapefruit or something with a butter knife and it's just not sharp? You, ever try, you have to work harder to get that, to cut that open. What happens is you begin to work harder at things you were never meant to have to work that hard. Isn't that something? The Lord, the Lord has built it in this way. You don't have to work harder than the thing itself requires. You were never meant to have to work harder than the thing itself requires. But what happens is we get into a rhythm of working without a sharp knife. And we begin to think that's just normal. And so our body feels fatigued, but we come to interpret it as normal. Our minds become a bit dull or racing or angry, and we think that's just normal. But it's not. You're working too hard at something that should not take that kind of effort. And the reason is because the ruler won't stop. That's what it is. The ruler won't rest. He has to pause. So then there's this other thing about pausing. Ah, a farmer has to pause. A farmer has harvest. During harvest season, you can tell me if you're farmers, uh, you can tell me better than I know, but I grew up in Indiana. It's a farming community. You, grow, you go harvest. Harvest is like uh, sun up to sundown or later for an intense period of time. So I don't know, two to four weeks, you're just working. But here's the thing. That's not the norm. Uh, there's planting. There's waiting and letting the soil be. There's tending. Some of us think that every day is supposed to be harvest time. Are you thinking that every day is supposed to be harvest time? The wise say there's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. And uh, you got to pause to uh, sharpen your tools. Now, we can think about this in light of our own personal selves. What, is your, what, what are the tools you use? Your, your body, your mind, your soul. You have to pause. 
in order to succeed. You want to succeed? God's calling you to succeed. He's not against it. He's inviting you to it. He's just saying there's a way. There's a wise way to succeed. Think about that if you have teams that you oversee. Is the category of pause built into how you evaluate them? Because if it is, they're going to be less productive in certain ways, more productive in others. Less productive in the short run, more productive in the long run. Here's what I mean. If you allow a person to pause, it means they might meet with seven people in a week rather than ten. It might, make them t- it might take them ten days to meet with the same amount of people it used to take them eight days. Now, ten years from now, what will that matter? Ten years from now, even though it takes two days longer than what it used to take you, because now you're taking a full 24-hour pause, uh, the difference is ten years from now, you're still going strong. But when you don't build that category of pause into your team, and they know you're not going to evaluate them on that, and they know you want them to produce, 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 large, famous, fast, larger, famouser, faster, right? So they don't have time to take a breath. Then uh, uh, you're, you're going to look like you're moving faster, but you're going you're to quit. They're going to quit. They're going to burn them out. You're burning them out. And I know sometimes we say, we just burn out for Jesus. I just think, man, I don't see that in the Bible. I just... In other words, we're saying, let's be foolish for Jesus. We, we should never justify folly in the name of evangelism. We should never justify folly in the name of mission. There's all this wisdom literature in the Bible for a reason. So, our Lord Jesus, who is prophet, priest, king, and sage, isn't it something... It's in the afternoon, and he's sitting by a well. What's he doing in the afternoon, sitting by a well? He's already tired from his journey. It's only noon. What's he doing tired already? Asking the woman at this well for a drink? What's he doing sleeping in the boat? I mean, have you thought about that? It's in the late afternoon, they're in the boat, the storm comes, la, 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 Peter's going to blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, but what is he, a grown man, doing taking a nap? Well, he's like 32. <laughs> Our Lord's 32 years old, taking a nap in the late afternoon. And he is sleeping so soundly. I mean, he is resting. So soundly, he doesn't even, the whole commotion just goes on past him. Is he lazy? No, really? We can't say that the son of the living God, God himself, the savior of the world, is lazy? No. It's just, he's been going for quite a while that day. He's got a long night ahead of him. He has to pause. Isn't that freeing? You get to pause. Restaholics, I'll come back next year. We'll talk about that. But workaholics, you get to pause. That's how you succeed. How would we say it? Uh, work smarter, right? That's how we'd say it. So I don't know. What does a pause look like? There's all kinds of things to say about that that could be really helpful. Can I just uh, invite you to this? This isn't, this is, you can figure it out for what you want. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take 24 hours with no... Uh, social media or email. And I'm trying to take 24 hours in which I don't read or do the kinds of things I typically read or do. Man, that's hard. First, uh, I'm two hours into the no email social media thing. Here's what I'm figuring. If it's an emergency, they're not emailing me. Or if they do, they're going to learn. You don't email someone with an emergency, right? They're going to call. So I'm two, I'm two hours in. I just, I just want to keep reaching for the phone. My addiction surfaces. Four hours in, I'm irritable. I'm just mad. <laughs> Nine hours in, whew, man, this is starting to feel good. 
start to have the thought, boy, you're going to have a lot of emails in the morning. <laughs> then I set that thought by faith before the Lord. I cast that care before the Lord. Yep, but the Lord will be with me in the morning. And I'll have a little more strength to handle it than I do right now. And then sure enough, 24 hours in. Here's what happens. First time you do a 24-hour thing like that, it's like a detox. You're like someone trying to quit smoking, looking for gum to chew. You know, you might cry for no reason. (laughs) So if that happens to you, hang in there. The next Friday, do the same thing. It's this exponential thing building into your life, this pause, this rhythm into your life or whatever, you know, your day off is and things like that. Why? Because we want to succeed. And the Bible says if you want to succeed, the ruler, when the iron is blunt, has to stop and sharpen it. And the people who are volunteers or staff who work with and for you, it is the same for them. And so we learn to build in this. Resisting rest and pause. I, uh, I, I was having dizzy spells, this is a few years ago, having lots of dizzy spells, significant ones, and uh, we were six months of medical tests, and they found nothing. Um, and then finally, one of the, the doctors just asked me, do you have any stress in your life? Well, yes, I do. I'm a pastor with three young kids pursuing a PhD all at the same time. I'm a little stressed. Well, I had started to study after the, my wife and children went to bed. And of course, as a pastor, if you want to meet with certain folks, it's got to be first thing in the morning. So I was two years into that rhythm, studying from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., up for the 6.30 breakfast plus solo pastor. In those days, we preached, one pastor would preach two sermons because you had the morning uh, service and the evening service, and they were two different sermons. Those back in those days. And uh, man, I had nothing wrong, but I didn't know how to pause, and my body was trying to tell me. So there's the good news of freedom. Uh, Workaholics, you get to rest, and rest will be the way of succeeding. And so in our congregation, we've, uh, we, we use this phrase, strategic pause for vigorous mission. So you can find your own language for that. We're not talking about laziness. We're not talking... Strategic pause for vigorous or passionate mission. Pause so we can go the long haul, right? Built into our life. Well, Jesus invites us to that. Why would we not pause? Because right now, something's whispering in us, I'm not like other people. Yeah, other people need to hear this, but really, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need that. Uh, I know what that's like, but here it is. I love the next one. Ready? The first is immunity. The second is resisting pause. The third one is trying to have the position without the wisdom to have it. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. This is humorous. So picture it. So Middle Eastern serpent charmer. So you got the basket, like the wicker basket or whatever that is. You got the big old snake coiled up in there, maybe a cobra or something. Crowd starts to gather. That's very exciting. You see the crowds gather. You have the position, you have the snake, you have the crowds, you have the basket. You start doing your incantations, you know, and the crowd loves that. It's very entertaining. You're like, yeah, this is cool. And the snake starts to come up out of there, and then bam, snake says, the heck with this. I'm biting you, right? And he just got bit right in front of everybody. Of what advantage... Is it if the serpent bites before it is charmed? You got the apparatus, you got the position, you got the clothes, you got the basket, but you don't know how to handle the snake. You got the crowd, but you don't know what you're doing. The error of a ruler is to seek a position to want a crowd before they have the wisdom to know how to handle it. 
Can I tell you, if you're a bit younger, or if you're not, (laughs) and there's a position on your horizon that you're looking for, and I'm talking about the best possible scenario where a loving mentor who believes in you, cares about you, with gentleness, believes in your future, comes to you and says, we just don't think you're ready. I know that's going to hurt. I know it's going to hurt, but can I tell you what? You may have just been rescued by the grace of God. Because by the time you get to the position, you'll know how to handle the snake. And it's a tragic thing for us to be surrounded by crowds cheering. And it turned out we did not have the inner wisdom to handle it. And we all know that with great compassion for colleagues of ours. And here's the danger of thinking, well, we're not like them. Of course we are. And it could be, if you're in a position right now, you're... Uh, you're in a position and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, I don't know if I can, if I'm really cut out for this. But people want me to do it. There's applause for it. My social media, I got a good fan base. It's built. I've leveraged some things. People are looking at me. I mean, what happens if I suddenly disappear from Twitter? I mean, what is going to happen? <laughs> what happens if I step down from this position? Now, it could be that you're actually quite sane and that the fact that you're asking those questions is actually wise and it could be this is a moment to go to wise mentors and set it in front of them sometimes people will say they've outpunted their coverage it it could actually be that what you began has now become something else and wisdom would say be humble enough, be teachable enough to re-examine. Is this good for me? Am I in the right spot? Would someone else do this better, take it from here? Ah, who can have that kind of humility except the one who humbled himself and works it in us, you know? But there's also freedom there. There might be somebody here and you're trying to hold up an entire apparatus so that others in the crowd don't see you fall. Here's what I'd say. Let the apparatus go before you get bit. Much, much better on the crowd and on you to just call it a day and say it was good while we were here, wasn't it? Then to keep trying to perform and get everybody up there and just get zapped right in front of everybody. Well, that's what it's saying. You know, you would say this if you were counseling a young couple and uh, they were engaged and they were thinking about a week before the, the wedding, maybe they don't want to get married. If you're in the family, you're freaking out. But if you're the pastor, you're saying, you know what, call it now. I know there's invitations. I know families coming from North Carolina and Phoenix. Call it now. This is a short-term pain. Right? Why would you say that to them? Because you're mean? No. Because you don't want them to succeed? No, the opposite. Better to wait. Right? So that's what this poem is counseling to us. Immunity and resisting rest and pause and trying to have the position before we have the wisdom to handle it. Ah, the next one is just so humbling. It's trusting our words to save us. You notice we haven't talked about greed, porn, or power yet. Five temptations no one's talking about. I'm not like other people. I don't have to, I'm immune. I don't have to rest like other people. I can handle any position, unlike other people. I can. And... My words are awesome. (laughs) See it there? (laughs) The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talk is evil madness. Here it is, verse 14. Preachers were about to cringe. A fool multiplies words. (laughs) 
though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? What's it talking about here? Casting vision. Connect it. A fool multiplies words, though no one knows what is to be. No one can know what comes after him. This is multiplying words about the future. Uh, The wisdom in the New Testament echoes the same in the book of James. Do not say tomorrow we will do this and that. For who knows, tomorrow the Lord might require your life of you. Jesus taught this too, right? Say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do, right? And so, here we are, a fool multiplies words. I can tell you that um, as those who have been taught to talk, uh, this gift can uh, become a, a savior to us, a crutch, a poor savior, a false savior. But uh, let's be funny about it. it. It looks like this. You've noticed that you've now spent seven minutes framing the text that you're going to send back. Should it be this emoji or that emoji? Do I have the period here? Is this the right word? Or, or the email? Man, that's important. It is. It is important. But here's the thing. Sometimes the problems you have aren't about clarity at all. It isn't because your words weren't clear. They were. The problem's different than that. You can be the clearest communicator that ever existed, and some people will still crucify you. Multiplying words won't solve it. So, uh, you know, you get the email. <laughs> And uh, somebody sent that email like this. Caps. And they sent that to you. And you get it. Oh, yeah. Now what happens? They send one right back. Now here you are. Speed. Hurry. Haste. Everything the scripture calls folly is now happening. Uh, multiplying words isn't helping anybody. So sometimes, you know, if you're a baseball player and you have three good pitches and uh, they're hitting your best pitch that day, what happens? I mean, what do you do when they hit your best pitch? It's time to come out of the game. (laughs) You know? What What if the little train who could... I think I can, I think I can, I think I can climb that mountain. What? What if there is a mountain that the little train can't? It doesn't matter how much words he tells himself, I can, I can, I can. But he can't. What now? The fool just starts talking about the future, multiplying words. It's going to be this, we're going to do that, it's going to be this. You don't know the future. You are not a know-it-all. You are a human being, O king. Stop talking. Sometimes a wise leader is quiet. Makes everybody else nervous. Because they don't want discomfort in their life of any kind. So they want you to remove it with your words. And oh, you want to do it for them. They don't know how to go 24 hours. They don't know how to end a Tuesday and and nothing be fixed. And so they want you to speak. Tell them. Not about hope in the gospel, but start just telling them, we're going to do this and that. It's going to be this and that. How do you know? In chapter 5 of the book Ecclesiastes, it's even more poignant. It says, watch your steps when you go to the house of God. What that says is, look out when you go to church. Why? Because fools are there. How do you know the fool? They're always talking. Lots and lots and lots of words. You can read it, Ecclesiastes 5. 
A fool multiplies words. That's why James would tell us, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Ah, oh, that's not for preachers. That's for other people. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> go back and look at that context. That's in that section where it says, let not many of you be teachers, my brothers. We all stumble in many ways. What's the first way we stumble? Our talk, the tongue. And he lists metaphor after metaphor after metaphor after metaphor to talk about the danger of talk among those who teach. Well, that's a temptation not many people are talking about, and I need you to talk to me about it because I trust my words. I do. I've seen God use my words so many times. I just think in the living room, if I'm talking to my teenager, I have spoken, you know? So there is something. Uh, you need a Savior that's deeper, wider, longer, higher than the words you speak. And the people you and I serve need a Savior that's something other than your words. It's Jesus himself. And there are times in which we have nothing to say, and it is wise and sane to be quiet. But we are present, and we are waiting for the word of another. And it's his word, the Lord. A ruler, see, forgets that. He, he gets into this position and begins to multiply words about the future and vision. And Careful, careful. Does a ruler, a king, need to have plans? Absolutely. Do they need to set forth a direction for the people? Absolutely. But the king, though he is king, still isn't God. He is like other people. He does not know the future. He must depend not upon his words, but on the one who does know the future, the Lord himself. So some of you who are quieter and always feel like you should talk more, I don't know, those who mentor you in your life, maybe they would tell you you could because you're not talking out of shame or something like that. But I can also encourage you, uh, if, you're, if, if you're not being quiet because you're cowardly or passive and stuff like that, you're being quiet because you're trying to, to wait and listen and learn. Hey, that's, that sounds like wisdom. And a leader, maybe we can say it this way. Your sentences are equally as important as your silences as a leader. Your silences are equally important as your sentences as a leader. The tools you have as a leader are not only your sentences, but also your silences. Not the silent treatment kind of silences. Not the punishing kind of silences. Not silences that look like wisdom, but just conceal the folly that you're passive, aggressive, and avoiding something. I mean, the quiet that comes from waiting. So you're in a, you're in a, a moment counseling someone. Here's what this looks like. Think of it this way. When you're sitting in pastoral counsel, the person woke up with the Lord. The Lord has been with them all morning. Your appointment's at two. The Lord's been with them all morning been with them through lunch, and now walks with them into the office where you are. You sit with them. You know that when this time is over, the Lord is going to walk with that person out of this meeting. Guess what that means? You are not the center of this meeting. So, the first posture isn't, I got to find words the first posture is, Lord, what are you doing? You're the first on the scene. I'm second to arrive. What are you doing? Sometimes we just start to use words because we're, we're uncomfortable with quiet. But multiplying words won't help you succeed. So what you can do is this. You can just say to the person, you know what? Can we just pause You've just shared your heart. It means so much. Before we start to say anything, can we just, let's take one minute of quiet. Let's practice being slow to speak and quick to listen. And then in a minute, after we've quietly prayed, then let's see what the Lord might be showing us. 
And instead of being the expert to fix everything, you might start to talk more like this. Here's what, it's, here's what it seems like. This is what I'm hearing. I'm saying this and this and this. Have you thought about this? And now it's like you're both listening for what the Lord might do by and with his word in the moment. Because multiplying words won't save. It's actually folly to do it. So we watch out for that. Um, the Lord himself has been quiet in your life, hasn't he? Sometimes unnervingly so. The Lord who loves you has been quiet. Why? Because he's mean? No. Because he doesn't multiply words. He's, he's okay with the relationship. You know how it goes. Uh, it's hard to be in the presence of another person that you don't really know. You know, there's an awkwardness to it, right? There can feel like pressure. You got to somehow talk or something. But someone you've known for a long time, you can just be quiet together. It's like easy. You don't have to constantly talk. This is your Lord, the lover of your soul, the delicious good who's given his very self for you. He not only delights in you and loves you, he likes you. You guys got a long history together. You don't have to talk every second. You get to just do life. And sometimes you're talking and sometimes you're listening. And sometimes he's talking and sometimes he's quiet. But not passively so. He's not disengaged. It's just the enjoyment of each other's company. Finally, uh, not liking the ordinary. I'll just mention this quickly. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him. He does not know the way to the city. This is marvelous. You guys are praying for Houston, you know. But this is a ruler who is king of a place, and he doesn't know his way around. So th this is a king who would have to stop and ask for directions. He doesn't know the names of people, doesn't know the names of streets, doesn't know the place. Why doesn't the king, the ruler, know the place, the city? Why? Because it wearies them. It wears them out. For the ruler to do such unimportant things as care about a place and the people in it. That's just all too ordinary. Street names. He doesn't have time for that kind of thing. So while this ruler is giving himself to who knows what, all of his words, thinking he's immune, uh, not resting in any way, trying to succeed without it, charming the snake, and multiplying words and all these things, in all of that ah, energy of movement, speed, and hurry, and haste, and vision, and everything else, he doesn't know the name of the street. And he would think that knowing the name of the street would be, that's too hard work. Where's it bound? Have you ever felt that way? Man, to, to have something that seems big, you feel energized. Maybe you've heard, a, maybe you've said this, pastor will say it like this. I'm just more energized when I preach to more people. I just think I was made to preach, you know, maybe to a lot of hundreds or a thousand. I just feel more energized when I'm preaching to those, that number of people. I just always want to say, duh. I mean, there's just more natural energy in the room when you got that many people. And who wouldn't like to preach to a thousand people? There's nothing uniquely spiritual about that. I'm asking you, the text is asking me, who are the names of the 110 people you preach to? What streets do they live on? What are, what's the history of those streets? What's the nature of this city? Are you saying that kind of work doesn't energize you? Hmm. The toil of a fool wearies him. He just doesn't know his way around the place he's in. So, uh, so the, the wisdom here is, I think, as someone has said, put your head down, right? Plant your church. It's be where you are. Trust that all that mundane work of the leader is exactly what you were meant to do. 
And whatever comes out of that will come out of that. I mean, it's an amazing thing if you live at the corner of Kirkham and Elm and the mayor of the town knows your name. Those are streets where I live. You know. So, the Lord Jesus, think about that. He knows his sheep by name. He, he knows who lived in the house before you moved in. He knows who's going to live there after you move. He knows the inner workings of the generation of pastors who preceded you in Houston, whose names you don't even know. And he knows the proceedings and stories of the pastors to whom you're going to pass your batons, whose names you don't even know when you're too old and the younger generation has come up. He cares about Houston. He knows it more than you and I do. And so he leads us into it. That's why I find myself praying this prayer. I shared it earlier and we can, we can end here. Maybe you need to pray it too. Lord, I'll say, why do you love Webster Groves? Why are you here? Why do you care about these street names and these people? What's so pretty about this place to you? What's so meaningful? It just seems boring to me sometimes. It just seems like the same old, same old work sometimes. Why do you love it? Why, why aren't you wore out with Webster Groves? Show me again, please. You know? And maybe you get to ask that. I, I ask it for St. Louis and Webster. You get to ask it for Houston and your locality within Houston. And the Lord gets to show us again his big-hearted love for this place and how it does not weary him. And also, let me leave you with this. I like to think of it this way. If, think about it. If the Lord was this kind of ruler, think about that. He did not take immunity on himself, but he bled and died. Rose was human in every way. He paused with rhythms of rest. He worked harder than all of us, and he rested more. To succeed, he certainly knew how to handle the serpent in more ways than one. He didn't multiply words. He knew the way to the city. I know my sheep. I know them by name. They know me. Isn't that good news? It's the good news that Jesus knows the directions to navigate Webster Groves. Because if he didn't, there'd never be a church there. And if Jesus didn't care about small, ordinary people and places, he and I would have never met. Because I'm from Henryville, Indiana. I did not want to make it my great ambition to be a pastor in Webster Groves, Missouri. But in order to reach the world for Christ, it has to be somebody's ambition. They got to know the way to that city. Yeah. So here are these warnings, but they're also graces. Jesus has paid for all of our foolish talk. Jesus has paid for all of our unwillingness to rest. Jesus has paid for all of our hurry to have a position when we didn't know have the wisdom to handle it. Jesus has paid for every time you've tried to be immune and thought you were blessed and favored and not like other people. And Jesus has paid for every time you've thought it too mundane and wearisome to learn the name of a street or an ordinary person in the city that you serve. He's paid for all of that. Taken upon himself and said, forgive them. And said, it is finished. He rose from the grave to save you from your foolish talk as leaders. Isn't that something? Rose from the grave to save you from your resistance to rest. Isn't that amazing? Rose from the grave for every time you said, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Rose from the grave to free you, to lead wisely, to deliver you from folly so that you can succeed. He gave you the ambitions that you have. He gave you the desires that you have. Now he wants to disciple them so that they grow in wisdom. Seek great things, my friends. Just make sure you define greatness the way he does. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord, for mercy and grace and wisdom and poetry and such practical temptations. And thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for graciously delivering us. We ask now for the courage and the community that we need to take small steps in these ways. For the sake of Houston and for your name, for the sake of St. Louis, Webster Groves, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.